Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Peter J. Collini, author of the book The Aesthetic Cold War, Decolonization and Global Literature. Peter, welcome to the New Books Network. Mark, thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. So I am a scholar uh, of 20th century British literature. That's how I started out in this field of interest. And over time, I gradually became more interested in how white metropolitan writers working in Britain, especially during the mid-century, mid-20th century period, um, started collaborating with, communicating with, publishing alongside writers from what's now known as the Global South, uh, especially Sub-Saharan Africa, the Caribbean, and southern parts of Asia. So th- those are those are where my main interests lie. And as we go along, I'm sure I'll be a- able to tell you a little bit about how I landed on this particular project. I was actually wondering if you could uh, a- answer that question now, because it's a very fascinating project, and it's one that it, you're you know, based upon your description, is is so much larger than just a, a focus upon mid twentieth century British authors. What led you to undertake this topic? What interest did you in it? And and, and how did it? Uh, ex- uh, how was it a product of your uh, of your previous work? So in two thousand ten, I was working on a book that that was published in twenty thirteen called Commonwealth of Letters. And there was a large section in that book on the BBC. And the reason I was interested in the BBC is because there are a number of writers such as T.S. Eliot and Stephen Spender who did collaborative work with writers from the West Indies in particular. And um, as I was doing my research on the BBC, it led me to a set of archives in Texas at the Harry Ransom Center is based in Austin at the University of Texas. And while I was doing my work there, as I do everywhere I do archival work, I describe what I'm doing to librarians and archivists who are at the, at the center um, because they often know more about their holdings than anyone from the outside could possibly know. Um, so as I was describing my work to someone, uh, this, this archivist, Bob Taylor, said to me, have you heard of something called the Transcription Center? I said, no. He said, well, it was uh, started in the late 1950s, early 1960s, and it was a radio venture that was specifically geared towards um, gathering interviews and distributing them for worldwide circulation with African writers. It was based in London, and there was a, an ex-BBC staffer who ran the transcription center. And I said, oh, well, you know, that sounds really interesting. I'll get to it when I get to it. Um, I've got this other project I'm working on, and, and I'll check it out in due course. And he said to me, the other interesting thing you should know about this is that the project, the transcription center, was funded by the CIA. And I said, really? The CIA? What were they doing funding a program, a radio program about African literature feeding, featuring writers such as, you know, Vole Shoyinka and Gugiwa Tiongo and other African mid-century writers? And he said, well, um, I don't know a ton about the archive, but I do know that the CIA was heavily involved. And so you might want to do a little digging to see if you can learn more about that story. And, um, Despite the fact that I was working on an entirely different project, that afternoon I, I requested some of the boxes related to the transcription center, and I started digging. And that's how I got started on this project. It took me a long time to finish it because it grew and, and mutated over time. But that was the sort of germ of the project is trying to figure out why was the CIA interested in African literature in the 1960s? How involved were they? And um, what were some of the effects of that interest? And the project grew from there to include examinations of what the Soviet Union were doing in terms of what I call cultural diplomacy, 
Um, and then I then I ended up talking about the CIA's other main role, um, which is, of course, gathering intelligence and spying on intellectuals and dissidents and writers. So that's sort of how the project started and, and where it grew from there. And I was thinking this is the first literary project I've ever encountered that involved so much work in uh, declassified uh, security documents. As you describe, it, it really is a, a, a fascinating source for a lot of these writers, a source that you don't, obviously don't have with, with so many authors, but you have a resource that, as you described, doesn't just give, give us insight into their lives, but it also reflects a, a sense as to how their activities were being interpreted within the context of this broad global event. Well, I was lucky to have a couple of important forerunners that I should probably mention here. So um, William Maxwell, who published a book a few years ago with Princeton University Press called uh, FBIs. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really important book that documents how the FBI were monitoring African-American writers in particular in the United States. And likewise, James Smith, um, who's, a, who's, who's based in the United Kingdom, has got a book on British literature and the, and the MI5. And both of them work with documents that have been declassified. Um, one of the things that I, I bring to that project is that I'm looking at writers from the global south um, and their interactions with what I call cultural diplomacy on the one hand. So how did the U.S. and Soviet Union reach out to writers in the global south sponsoring magazines, radio programming, book publishing, cultural centers, libraries, and so forth? on the one hand. And on the other hand, how did the political police and the spy agencies collect information on writers? And one of the fascinating parts of this story is that some of these writers moved back and forth between Soviet and US-sponsored networks. So writers, for example, like Chinua Achebe, attended the 1962 African Writers of English Expression Conference in Uganda, in Kampala, Uganda, in 1962. Um, well, a few years later, he accepts the Lotus Prize from the Afro-Asian Writers Association, which was sponsored by the Soviet Union. Similar things happened with Ngugiwa Thiongo, one of the most prominent Kenyan writers, of his generation. Um, he attends that 1962 conference and then also goes on to win the Lotus Prize. Alex Laguma, a South African dissident from this period, publishes his first novella, A Walk in the Night, with Mbari Publishing um, in 1960, I believe. That's a Nigerian-based publisher, again, sponsored with Congress for Cultural Freedom Money. That's a CIA outfit. Um, he was invited to the African Writers of English Expression Conference in 1962, but he couldn't attend because he was in jail, uh, imprisoned by the South African authorities. Um, a few years later, he starts working extensively with the Afro-Asian Writers Association and goes on to become the, the, the editor of Lotus Magazine, the House Journal of the Afro-Asian Writers Association, and also the general secretary um, or the chief executive of the Afro-Asian Writers Association, this Soviet-sponsored literary magazine and network. So one of the fascinating parts of this story for me is that the writers in question did not line up very neatly into pro-U.S. and pro-Soviet camps, but in fact moved back and forth between these different cultural diplomacy networks. And that was an aspect of the story that I personally thought was really neat, which was the how it's in, in one sense, it's like, as though they're being ported by the two sides in the context of this process of decolonization. And, and in that respect, you're talking about these two broad uh, contemporary events that are taking place, the Cold War and decolonization, which are separate from each other and yet for which there's an enormous overlap. And I was wondering if you could start us off by talking a bit about uh, how the literature of decolonization, which uh, in which so many of these writers were participating, 
fits within that context and, and how it informs uh, our understanding of their works and how their works, you know, you know, fit within this context of the Cold War. So many of the, the writers that I described that moved back and forth between U.S. and Soviet cultural diplomacy camps um, were very much interested in taking advantage of whatever opportunities these um, government agencies afforded them for reaching different readers and different constituencies um, in making them global rather than regional or local authors. The, the U.S. and Soviet Union were, were heavily involved in that. But I think the, the, the key for me as I did more and more of my research into this is that writers were neither beholden to nor convinced by the ideological perspective of either the United States or the Soviet Union. And in retrospect, this makes a great deal of sense. The Bandung Conference of 1955 and the non-aligned movement that followed shortly after that conference um, attempted to navigate and announce a different set of ideological coordinates and political affiliations for the countries that had suffered under European domination and imperialism for so long. Um, so it isn't a surprise in some ways that many of the writers from the 1960s and 1970s that come from the global South, um, although they had a range of ideological perspectives and political persuasions, that they were convinced neither by the Soviet Union nor the U.S. Um, propaganda machine, if you like. And so when they interacted with these cultural diplomacy outfits sponsored by either one or the other of these superpowers, um, these writers were very savvy and clever and helped play these outfits against one another, uh, one another excuse me, um, neither pledging loyalty nor doing the, the propaganda dirty work that both the U.S. and Soviet Union hoped that these writers would eventually do on their behalf. So one of the interesting upshots of this period is that the U.S. and Soviet Union were responsible in some key ways for giving writers from the global south an international audience. Um, but they were spectacularly unsuccessful, I think, in convincing writers from the global south to adopt a hardcore partisan line that favored one or the other of the global superpowers. Um, you also have to remember that these these writers, such as Chinua Chebe or Vole Shoyinka or um, they were very opinionated, they were obstinate, um, and they had their own ideas, and they were never likely to accept propaganda at face value or swallow it hook, line, and sinker, if I can mix metaphors there. Um, they always had their own ideas and were not willing to articulate them, um, even in the face of the the the. the, the the kind of cultural diplomacy um, courting and initiatives that were deployed by both of the Cold War superpowers during this period. Now, you're describing this courting process and, and, and their engagement with it. But it, as you also describe in the book, it's not necessarily an overt process. And I thought this came across most uh, clearly when you're describing the Congress for Cultural Freedom. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about that organization and, and how it operated in Africa and, and, and perhaps the degree to which the, the writers who were engaging with it actually understood, you know, to, to, were they aware that this was, uh, you know, a, a very, uh, uh, you know, conscious effort to engage with them in, in the context of the Cold War? Or was it just a Western uh, operation? And that only later when when the CIA links were revealed, did they you know, appreciate what it was that, that the CCF was really trying to do? So I'll try to give a short answer and then a longer answer, as, <laughs> as academics often do. So um, the, the, did African writers know that this was the Congress for Cultural Freedom was being funded by the CIA? No, they probably not. Did they suspect it? Some of them certainly did. The other important thing to point out is that although the CIA was covertly funding the Congress for Cultural Freedom, um, it the, the Congress for Cultural Freedom was never 
covert about its general ideological orientation. Um, the Congress for Cultural Freedom consistently described itself as an anti-totalitarian organization that was going to defend freedom of speech, freedom of political persuasion, and freedom of development in the arts in particular. So that's the, the, the sort of short answer is that they didn't necessarily know that the CIA was behind it, but many of the writers involved, such as Eskia Falele, the South African exile, who worked for the Congress for Cultural Freedom and was their a- African liaison officer from 1961 to 1963, um, they, they certainly didn't know that the CIA was behind it, but they certainly did know that it was an anti-totalitarian organization. So the, the longer answer is that the CIA, I think, got mixed up in the, in the writing of what's now called the Global South or what was then called the decolonizing areas of the world, especially in Africa and the Middle East, more or less by accident. Um, the Congress for Cultural Freedom started out in 1950, um, and the goal for the organization was to persuade intellectuals, writers in particular in Western Europe, to steer clear as much as possible of the Soviet Union. The United States and the CIA spy outfit were concerned that Western European intellectuals, who they thought exerted a sort of disproportionate influence on public opinion, were too left-leaning. Um, uh, an example would be somebody like Jean-Paul Sartre, um, who was resolutely non-aligned in many key ways. He was convinced that neither the United States nor the Soviet Union had all the answers to the world's political problems. But from the perspective of the United States, he was too close to the communists. And they set up the Congress for Cultural Freedom in Western Europe, Western Europe to do cultural diplomacy work, to support magazines. And Counter Magazine was the transatlantic showpiece of the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Um, So when they started out their work, it was almost exclusively in Western Europe. But as they realized, um, people, intellectuals like Sartre, were really interested in the question of decolonization. And they felt that the answer to the world's problems might not be solved by the US and the Soviet Union, um, but it would certainly be ameliorated Um, with the process of decolonization. And this is why many non-aligned figures in Europe threw their weight behind uh, decolonization efforts. And the Congress for Cultural Freedom followed suit. They increasingly believed that in order to win the Cold War, the United States needed to find allies and partisans, if you like, in the non-aligned world. So they began reaching out to intellectuals in India, where they largely failed, in the Middle East, where they had somewhat more success, in Latin America, where they had a little bit of success also. But as I tell the story in my book, I think they had the most influence and success in the world of arts and letters in sub-Saharan Africa, where they launched magazines, ran some of the most important literary conferences and prizes during this period. And that's really how the CIA got involved. Now, that outfit, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, imploded in the years 1966 to 1970, 1967, excuse me, when the, the links to the CIA were, expo- were exposed um, by the New York Times and some other some other um, investigative journalists at a, at, at a magazine called Ramparts. So in, in the late 1960s, the CIA imploded. And one of the interesting parts of this story is that the, the Soviet Union, their cultural diplomacy programs were always clear about sponsorship. Um, and as a result, their cultural diplomacy programs both predated what the Congress for Cultural Freedom were doing in Africa and elsewhere, as well as outlived it, lasting just about until the end of the Cold War in the late late 1980s, early 1990s. It's that contrast that, that I, I, I found amongst the most fascinating points, how it 
you know, the CCF is working and it seems independent. And, and as, as you suggest, you know, that they, they that the writers you know, probably knew, you know, some of them probably knew that that it was coming from, you know, the American government. But whereas the Soviets, they were open about it. And, and that, of course, creates its own uh, challenges. Uh, and, and this is something that you, uh, you know, reference periodically, which is what happens in, say, 1956 with the Soviet invasion of Hungary. You have people like Doris Lessing who uh, break away from it because that that overt association, while on the one hand means that oftentimes writers are being put on the spot, you know, to take a stand on uh, where they choose to take a stand on an issue, they're going to openly disassociate themselves with what is an openly, you know, which is a uh, you know open about its association with Soviet Union. But the flip side is that you don't have that 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 sense of, of manipulation or at least, uh, 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 you know, effort attempted manipulation that comes from being a, a quote, covert uh, operation. So you have something like, say, as you point out, the Af Afro Asian Writers Union, which doesn't, you know, make any, uh, you know, secret of it, the fact that it's Soviet sponsored, and, and, and how, you know, people are nonetheless still willing to, you know, contribute to Lotus, willing to, you know, run their articles, and of course, to, uh, you know, provide the, take the financial support that's provided from that. Yeah, it is one of the interesting features. The Soviet Union had a very spotty record um, going back to the 1930s um, with the Popular Front movement, um, where they where they you know flip flopped, if you want to use more contemporary language, in their support of the decolonization movements. In the aftermath of 1956, there was a mass exodus of the Communist Party, and you know famously figures such as Doris Lessing. And Emmy Césaire, the great Martinican politician and Communist Party member, uh, they left the party, and and Emmy Césaire penned a famous open letter of resignation explaining exactly why he was leaving the Communist Party. And among his his chief reasons for that is that he felt that the Soviet Union were insincere in their efforts to uh, assist decolonization movements and, and rid the global South of European, Western European domination. Um, but it's interesting in the case of Lotus Magazine that Soviet sponsorship was always open. And one of the, one of the I'll call it cultural assets and political assets, if you like, that the Soviet Union played when they established the Afro-Asian Writers Association and hosted conferences in places like Tashkent, Uzbekistan in 1958, where the first Afro-Asian Writers Association conference was hosted, and later in Almaty, Kazakhstan in 1973, where another conference was hosted. Um, so the, the, the among the Soviet Union's trump cards, if you like, or one of the things that they used to convince writers in the decolonizing world that they were serious in their efforts is that Soviet Asian writers were featured very prominently in uh, the journal Lotus as well as at the conferences. And the Soviet Union continuously emphasized that writers in the decolonizing world could write in whatever language they chose. And so the Soviet Union established not only at the Afro-Asian Writers Association in order to promote links between Soviet Asia and the rest of the decolonizing world, but it also established an enormous translation industry. And they strongly encouraged writers from the global south to write in languages of their choosing. And the Soviet Union would help them translate um, and get their work out there to wider audiences. Lotus as a magazine was a, a, a sort of perfect encapsulation of this. It was published more or less simultaneously in three languages, Arabic, French, and English. Um, so at least one of the languages, Arabic, was a, a, a language that was indigenous to parts of the areas of, of the global south. But they also funded translation from a multitude of languages into those three languages for the purposes of publication for that journal. This was a big contrast to the U.S. cultural diplomacy system, which tended to favor publication in English. This is one of the reasons that figures such as Chinua Achebe and Vole Shoyinka and Alex Laguma and Ngugi Wathiongo become big players in the CCF Africa network is because they were able to read and write and publish in English, which offered them a big advantage 
in the CCF network. Um, the Soviet model challenged that by offering up indigenous languages as viable literary alternatives to the imported European languages of the global South. You have just touched upon another aspect of this that I, I think is very fascinating, which is that we, you talk about these institutions and you talk about this Cold War context, but on a, a different level, there's just this practical sense that that, that comes across, not, not explicitly, but, but it is definitely there, that for a lot of these authors, it's about finding a platform, finding a, a, an income, really. And I, I think that comes across uh, very well in your chapter on Eileen Chang. Uh, who you know, is you know, there? We're not talking about uh, the CCF. We're talking about another American agency that was involved in the cultural Cold War, which was the United States Information Agency, and about how she worked with them uh, in the 1950s. I was wondering if you perhaps talk a bit about her and about her association with the USIA and 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 how it fits within the overall context of the aesthetic Cold War. So Eileen Chang is in in many ways the most fascinating case study that I offer up in the book. Uh, she started out her career as a teenager in Shanghai, in China, um, in 1937, publishing both in Chinese and in English. Um, she's a bilingual writer. Um, and shortly after the start of her career, um, she gets married to someone who is a cultural minister in the Japanese puppet regime in China. Uh, and some of her earliest publications uh, appear in pro-Axis journals. Um, although Eileen Chang was not an active member of the puppet regime that the Japanese had installed in, in parts of China in the late 1930s, um, she certainly collaborated with them in, in literary terms. Now, after World War II and after the end of the Chinese Civil War, which finishes in 1949, uh, Eileen Chang collaborates briefly with the communist cultural network. In fact, two of her early novels are serialized in Chinese, in pro-communist or communist-affiliated newspapers. Uh, in 1952, however, she becomes increasingly disenchanted with either the political situation um, or her publishing opportunities in China and goes to Hong Kong as a refugee, essentially. Because she was bilingual, she started doing work for the U.S. Information Agency, which is the cultural diplomacy offshoot of the U.S. State Department. She started out doing translation work. She translated people like Ernest Hemingway and Henry James into, into Chinese. And then she started working with the U.S. Information Agency to publish some of her own writing. She left Hong Kong in 1955 and eventually came to the United States and continued her bi bilingual publication career, releasing her, her novels simultaneously um, in English and Chinese throughout the 1950s um, through her work with the U.S. Information Agency that was Again, doing some of this, some of this this propaganda work in uh, in Southeast Asia in particular, um, and they used they, they used Eileen Chang as as one of their centerpieces. She was a talented and accomplished writer, and and for me, one of the fascinating parts of her story is that collaborating with the Japanese puppet regime and collaborating with the Chinese Communist Party in the early days of the regime did not in fact, disqualify her for work with the U.S. Information Agency, but in fact made her a more attractive figure for, for them to use. I was thinking about how that was reflected in her work, that the, those experiences and that, and that propaganda. And the, and the novel you, you feature is the Rice Sprout song, in which you have this the story of the, this this couple uh, in, uh, in 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 uh, communist China, and it's a novel about land reform. And you describe how in this in this novel there is a anti-communist message but it's not a explicitly anti-communist work you describe that that, that there's uh, there's almost like a, a, a general cynicism and that uh, that exists in it that that 
kind of makes it more than just simply, you know, uh, uh, you know, one sided propaganda. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is something that other uh, Chang scholars and there are there are people out there, of course, who know a lot more about Eileen Chang that, than I do. They, they've noted that um, the novel, although it's written with the support of the U.S. Information Agency and is actually serialized in Chinese in a U.S. Information Agency magazine <clears throat> excuse me, called World Today, and it is described in World Today as an anti-communist novel. Um, and the Communist Party come off terribly in the novel. But there's a there are a couple of fascinating scenes where Chang turns the propaganda glove of the novel or shape of the novel inside out in order to depict the Kuomintang, the 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 the, the, the regime led by Shanghai Shek. Um, and, uh, which was the anti-communist regime supported by the United States as equally culpable for the situation in which China had landed itself in the early 1940s. Um, so the novel operates on a kind of interesting, uh, on an interesting basis in which it depicts, uh, the authoritarianism of the Chinese communist party, as well as the major alternative um, that being the Guomindang, as more or less interchangeable and equally authoritarian uh, regimes. And so um, the novel is certainly uh, uh, participating in some of the anti-communist propaganda that the U.S. State Department hoped that Eileen Chang would write when they commissioned her to write that novel, but she's not afraid to say that U.S. client states and proxies um, were equally culpable in the kind of authoritarian regimes that were happening in Asia and and in Africa in particular. Um, you see the same thing in in, in Korean writing as, as well as elsewhere. The alternatives to Chinese rule, or excuse me, to communist rule, um, were not always much better than the authoritarianism of of the Chinese Communist Party and its and its and its collaborators. I found myself thinking about the audiences as uh, that for that novel when I was reading your next chapter about Doris Lessing because there uh, you're it's a very different situation. Doris Lessing is not quite as in need of of, of a platform. She is more of an established writer, but there uh, the issue of the Cold War. And, and, and decolonization uh, concepts comes in in terms of uh, where she goes. And, and there you, you talk about how she's a person who is, you know, a, a, she, she's anti-racist. She, she's anti-colonial. In some respects, that uh, is more of an issue uh, for uh her government, the British, than uh, her the fact that she's a communist herself, and, and how that they, they can deal with her as being a communist in Britain. I, and I thought this was especially uh, fascinating more than they can deal with her being anti-colonial in a place like, say, Rhodesia or uh, South Africa, and, and how it, and that's where the the overlap gets really fascinating, and, and about how that in, in and, and the influence that that ends up having on her writing, which would you describe you know, that, the, that she's not unaware of the fact that she's being surveilled, and that it's, it's because of her positions on these politically very sensitive issues. Yeah. D Doris Lessing, is, as you point out, did not need the same kind of platform that some of the other writers had. By 1950, she had left Rhodesia where she grew up and had published um, her first novella. And um, she was an interesting figure. She initially got 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 tracked by MI5 and to a lesser extent MI6. She she got tracked by MI6 when she went traveling to the Soviet Union in 1952, if I'm not mistaken. She was part of a delegation, the first delegation of Western European writers after World War II to visit the Soviet Union. Um, she first gets picked up by by MI5 for surveillance. Um, because she was a communist, um, but she leaves the Communist Party at the end of 1956 or the beginning of 1957 and becomes increasingly anti-communist in her writing, in her speech, in her thought, and in her political activism. Um, 
But that didn't relieve her from the burden of being censored. She was never censored, excuse me, being surveilled by MI5, which were interested in her less for her communism than for her anti-racism. And what's particularly fascinating about MI5, and this will contrast with what I have to say about the FBI, I hope later in our, in our conversation, um, is that MI5 wanted to keep Doris Lessing as close to London as they possibly could. Um, I talk extensively in the book about her trip in 1957 to Rhodesia and her attempted trip to South Africa. Um, As soon as she gets off the plane, in fact, before she even gets off the plane, when she boards the, 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 goes into the boarding area in London to uh, travel southward to Rhodesia, there are reports being filed from agents on the ground working with MI5. And as soon as she lands in Rhodesia, the security services pick up her trail and follow her everywhere she went. Um, What was particularly interesting about this is that the MI5, um, when Doris Lessing was in in metropolitan Britain, took some efforts to conceal their activities. But in Rhodesia, the political police made it very clear to her from the moment she landed till the moment she left that they were watching her every move, tapping her every phone call, reading her every letter, talking to everybody that she talked to, checking her itinerary, reading their di- reading her diaries if she could get a handle on if they could if they could get a glimpse of them. Um, so it was really it was a really interesting um, difference between MI5 activities in in London and its environs and the kind of material that shows up in Doris Lessing's file when she travels to Rhodesia where she was quite openly followed and intimidated by the political police when she was there. Now, um, while she was in Rhodesia, she wanted to make a trip to South Africa as well. Um, they turned her right around at the airport and <laughs> sent her right back to Rhodesia. And when she writes about that experience, she says, when I got off the plane, this is in a, a travel memoir called Going Home. She says, as soon as I got off the plane, I knew that everybody in the airport, from the security agents to the people selling food to the to the girls, as she called them, selling cigarettes in the airport. This is back when you could smoke, of course, um, in, 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 in airports, um, was working for the state security service. Um, she didn't have a chance to test that out because they didn't, they didn't let her in. They sent her right back on a plane and Lessing was, was not willing to take this lying down. She immediately, when she got back to Rhodesia, sent off a news release to Reuters news agency. She wanted to let as many people as possible know that she'd been banned. She was officially a banned person in South Africa, which meant that not only could she enter the country, but that her writing could not be published and distributed and read in South Africa. Um, After she left Rhodesia, she found out that she was a banned person in Rhodesia as well. And that banning order would last, if I'm not mistaken, until Rhodesia was liberated in late 1970s, early 1980s, and and it was years before she returned to Rhodesia. So um, it it offered kind of an interesting snapshot of the MI5's activities. First, that they wanted to keep Lessing close to London, where they thought she couldn't do much damage, and away from the colonies. Uh, the other fascinating thing was the the sort of worldwide network that this uncovered. Uh, MI5 had thousands of agents working around the world, not always full-time. There were informants who would just provide information on an ad hoc basis. And they had, in addition to their agents, collaborators in many of their colonial and, of course, former colonial territories. And so it was a surprisingly efficient operation that was able to collect information from around the world before, you know, before anything like email or the internet or any kind of electronic communications were were widely used. You know, they were doing things the old fashioned way with telegrams and with with letters. Um, And yet they were able to collect hundreds and hundreds of, of pages of information on Doris Lessing, both when she was in the London area 
and when she traveled. And as you explained, that collection is mostly about observation, that apart from you know, what happens in South Africa, there's very little overt effort to obstruct her or to prosecute her. And the contrast you set up, as you mentioned, as you've already alluded to, is with the FBI, which, as you know, from the start, collects information with an idea with, with like, as though the end game is prosecution, imprisonment, or uh, expulsion. And, and you describe how the, the tone is different. And you, you, and you demonstrate this in the case with uh, two particular authors, uh, CLR James and, and, and Claudia Jones. And I, I find Claudia Jones especially fascinating because of the uh, overlap that exists, that you have someone who is monitored by both uh, the FBI and MI5, how she, how the FBI has, has a very, you know, is very, you know, focused on getting her out of the country and how MI5 is, is much more, uh, for lack of a better word, content to keep, just keep an eye on her, provided, of course, that she doesn't go back to the Caribbean. Yeah, that's right. So um, one of the interesting counterpoints that the book discusses is the, the difference between what the FBI were interested in doing uh, about colonial subjects in the United States um, versus what the MI5 were, were willing and interested in doing. Um, the two figures that I talk about in relation to the FBI are Claudia Jones and CLR James. Um, both were prolific writers and political activists. They had some sharply contrasting political views. Um, James was a Trotskyite. Um, if, if that if that terminology still has any reference. And Claudia Jones was the most important African Afro-Caribbean woman or African-American woman uh, in the Communist Party in the early 1950s. Um, the FBI and MI5 monitored both CLR James and Claudia Jones, uh, but the contrast is, is quite illuminating. Um, when, you, when you open up Claudia Jones's FBI file, which is over a thousand pages long, about uh, 800 pages are more or less legible, uh, meaning about 200 pages have been re redacted or withdrawn. Um, for whatever reason, but 800 pages is still a lot of material to get through. Um, from, the, from the very first early stages of monitoring Claudia Jones, the FBI was assembling something that they called prosecutive summaries. And um, this clearly shows that the FBI were interested because they knew eventually or discovered that Claudia Jones was not a national of the United States and was not, um, she was legally in the United States, but was, was not a citizen, um, or could be deportable in any, in any, at any rate. Um, they started assembling from the very earliest stages, these prosecutive summaries detailing how the FBI would assemble a case against Claudia Jones and CLR James when the matter came to court. Um, these prosecutive summaries are fascinating documents. Um, one of the ones that I looked at, probably the lengthiest one, is 111 pages long, full of information um, about what the FBI could present in court, what the prosecutors could present in court as evidence for Jones's unfitness to stay in the United States. And perhaps the most fascinating thing about this document is that it's got 40 exhibits. Most of them are pieces of writing and that they are almost all furnished by the Librarian of Congress. Um, this utterly blew me away. I did not expect it at all when I read it. Um, what you have uh, is the FBI turning itself into a kind of curator and archivist of radical African-American and African diasporic writing uh, and, and drafting in the librarian of Congress and the head librarian of the New York Public Library to make their case. Um, the FBI were very aggressive in their pursuit of both CLR James and Claudia Jones, uh, and they used the techniques of, of reading and scholarship in many ways to make their case. When Claudia Jones and 
CLR James get to, to, to England after they were deported? The MI5 certainly kept tabs on them, but there was nothing quite so aggressive as the FBI's monitoring um, when they were both in the United States. So again, it sets up an interesting contrast. And I think without their examples, I would have been tempted to say that Doris Lessing, who was white, was a kind of beneficiary of white privilege. But I think the cases, at least in her dealings with with MI5, uh, I think the cases of Claudia Jones and CLR James put a little pressure on that narrative um, because they were monitored in roughly the same ways as Doris Lessing was. Um, and they were allowed to stay in the UK, partly because uh, the, 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 the government, as you point out, wanted to keep them away from the colonies where it was presumed that they would cause trouble. Another aspect of, of the literature of this period that you discuss are our prison memoirs. And, and, and prison memoirs, as you note, are a, a relatively new genre in, in the mid-20th century. Uh, you know, Arthur Kessler uh, you know, uh, has it. You also have, uh, you know, in fiction, people like George Orwell. And, 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 and of course, Alexander Solzhenitsyn is the most uh, famous one uh, in terms of the Cold War. But the prison memoirs you talk about are not those of, of, of Western authors, but instead you talk about those of authors in uh, Indonesia, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. I was going to perhaps talk about those and, and how they uh, inform our understanding of the aesthetic Cold War. So I, I, in the in the chapter on prison memoirs, it's uh, it's a chapter that provides, if you like, the most stark reminder that uh, writers faced serious efforts by states to silence them, to channel dissent into acceptable formats, or to suppress it entirely. Um, what's interesting, well, there are a few interesting things to me about that chapter. One is that some of the writers who were the beneficiaries of what I call cultural diplomacy in certain contexts were also punished very severely um, by national governments after independence. Um, in the case of Ngugi Wationgo and Alex Laguma, in South Africa, Ngugi Wationgo's Kenyan writer, by the way, Alex Laguma in South Africa, as well as Vole Shuinka in, in Nigeria. Um, these writers spent extensive time in prison, often uncharged, um, charged with no specific crime, um, but held in a kind of preventative detention. Um, they're Prison memoirs are fascinating because they offer appeals to the outside world um, for their release and the restoration of their basic human rights. Now, one of the interesting features of these prison memoirs is that the United States were one of the leading antagonists, of course, of the Soviet Union, and they criticized the Soviet Union relentlessly on grounds of free speech, freedom of expression, freedom of political persuasion. But in the decolonizing world, it turned out that many of the writers who faced persecution did so at the hands of allies to the U.S. and proxy states for the U.S. South Africa is one of those obvious examples. The United States was a quiet but firm ally of South Africa during the apartheid period, which lasted from roughly World War II to 1990, not coincidentally the end of the Cold War. Kenya, of course, was another important U.S. ally in the eastern part of Africa. I also talk about uh, an an utterly fascinating memoir by a a Malawian poet, Jack McCombs, Jack Mapunji, and he, um, he of course, was imprisoned for uh, three and a half or four years at the hands of a another another pro-U.S. dictator, Hastings, Hastings Banda, in in Malawi. So, so one of the interesting things about prison memoirs is that, in certain contexts, the U.S. and its propaganda machine heavily promoted prison memoirs for writers such as Solzhenitsyn as a way to criticize the Soviet Union. 
um, what writers from decolonizing worlds, the decolonizing world who face state pressure did was to exploit an opening that the U.S. had had offered to them through some of these prison memoirs to make their own case and to sometimes criticize the U.S. directly or by proxy for the kind of treatment they were facing at the hands of authoritarian governments that were friendly to the United States in the context of the Cold War. We appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah, absolutely. So as I was um, working through this project, I came across a number of uh, manifestos written by anti-colonial writers. And I kept reading and reading and reading them. Many of them had a lot of things to say about communism and about capitalism, of course, they were principally anti-colonial in spirit. And the, the interesting thing about these manifestos is that I found that there were many that I wanted to read but couldn't actually read because my knowledge of the languages in which they were written is, is sketchy. So I've teamed up with Harris Feinsod, who's a Latin Americanist who works at Northwestern University, and Leah Feldman, who's uh, a specialist in Central Asian literatures at the University of Chicago. And we're working on a collection of primary documents from the anti-colonial movements, manifestos primarily, but we're also hoping to, to reproduce speeches and communiques. And we're hoping to create a, a kind of anthology, a, a massive one, I, I'm going to say, probably 200,000 or 250,000 words of some of the most important anti-colonial statements from the late 19th and, and into the 20th century that we can find. It's going to be a truly global project. So we're going to be including writers from five or six continents working in a whole variety of languages from uh, Turkish to Azeri to... English and French, of course, to Chinese, to Spanish, and many other languages from around the world in which anti-colonial documents and manifestos and speeches were written. So that's the, the project that I'm working on right now. It's kind of a massive project, um, but we've already made good progress. And I have two unbelievably smart and talented collaborators that are helping me bring this project to a wider public. That sounds like a fascinating project. I can't wait to see it when it comes out. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate the platform to share some of the work that's going to be appearing in the aesthetic Cold War, as well as talking about future projects that are in the pipeline for me. And thank you for agreeing to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you again.